Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. On a hot summer day in 1864 at the notorious Andersonville prison camp in Georgia, six prisoners of war were marched into the center of camp where they were confronted by a gallows erected for their executions. But it was not the Confederate guards or the camp commandant, Henry Wirtz, who organized and conducted these hangings. It was their fellow Union POWs. Who were the six victims, and why were they killed? We'll find out from Mary Gorman, author of Andersonville Raiders, Yankee vs. Yankee in the Civil War's Most Notorious Prison Camp. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from our traditional spot on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, where the Pirates have defeated Liberty by, it was 11 to nothing in the eighth inning last time I checked. Uh, But I'm not speaking for the baseball team here at ECU. I'm not speaking for anyone else, just myself. And likewise, our guest speaks only for herself here on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, here on campus, the uh, the question on everybody's mind, and well, on every listener's mind, I know you're all wondering, is how is the secret parking place doing? And the answer is this week, uh, twice I saw other cars parked in the motorcycle spots, the spots that used to be motorcycle spots that are the best spots in the whole lot, right near the closest to the building. And uh, I thought I was the only person who knew that they had been opened to general parking. 
because of the bad, uh, uh, because of all the construction going on. Uh, well, this week I, I did see other cars parked there, but there are three motorcycle spots, and I'm using one of them, and someone was using one of the other two today. So the people are chipping away. They're getting the idea that that little red, uh, whatever it is I drive, Honda Civic, is there every day and doesn't seem to get a ticket, and they're starting to park nearby. Well, I'll keep you posted on that because we're all, I know, anxious uh, about the state of parking here at ECU. In good news on campus, I'm getting a new computer this semester in the next month or so. For the first time in at least five years, for some reason unknown to me, I was skipped in the last computer refresh round. And when I got a call from IT saying, yeah, we want to upgrade, you, you apparently you still have Windows 7 on your machine, which is not supported. And I said, well, don't, don't do that because I don't think the machine can stand to upgrade uh, to Windows 10, then they did some inquiring and called back and left me a message. The sound of incredulity in the technician's voice, are you using a blankety-blank, whatever the name is, machine as your main computer? Uh, that should have been refreshed four years ago. So uh, I've been complaining about my computer for four years, not to you, but uh, to other people. And finally, I'm going to get one that will actually be taken out of the Stone Age. So hopefully that'll even help us here with uh, the podcast, get a clearer sound. Speaking of the podcast, last week I mentioned getting a phone call from a, uh, a, a operation of some sort. Uh, 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 I won't call it a criminal enterprise, but uh, a pod, uh, another podcast that wanted me to be interviewed about a book I had written, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? And other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. They asked if I'm still promoting the book. I said, well, you know, yeah. I mean, why not? Sure. Well, be on our podcast. Listeners will hear it and they'll all buy it. I thought, all right, I'm curious. Tell me more. And when they got to the part where they said, you have to put in uh, $1,200 of your own money to do this, I said, ah, there's the rub. No, thank you. Uh, on Civil War Talk Radio, guests do not pay $1,200. They do not pass go. Uh, they get chosen because you tell me what, who you want to hear on the show. Send me an email. Or I come across an interesting book and I invite someone. Or tonight's guest was someone I met last year at Civil War Institute at Gettysburg, which you should go to also. Tell them you're with Civil War Talk Radio, that you're a listener. They'll give you a discount. Uh, anyway... What I decided to do tonight is to experiment. Do you what do you get for twelve hundred dollar bribe to a podcast? I want to make an empirical test and see if those people paying that money are getting their money's worth. So, let's find out how much does promotion on a podcast affect sales of a book. If you do not already have a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln, go to Amazon, buy yourself a paperback copy. I think they're fifteen dollars. It's not an outrageous amount for the interest of science, which is what this is. It's an experiment. And when we come back in two weeks, next week being spring break, I will check the sales figures at the publisher's website and we'll see just how much $1,200 worth of promotion buys uh, somebody on a podcast. We'll see how many sales we get. And just to stress, this is not for my benefit, these sales. Uh, this is purely... Uh, in the interest of, of advancing human knowledge. Here's some inside baseball. When I wrote the book, I got a modest advance, which they accurately 
calculated would match the lifetime sales of the book. And it almost did. It would be pretty close to that, except for one thing that did happen late in the book production uh, plan. The publisher said, you need an index. I said, of course, every book needs an index. They said, we'll make the index for you. And I thought, well, that's, that'll take a lot of weight off my shoulders. That's, that's a lot of work to make your own index. The person who made the index had read the book, discovered it was tongue-in-cheek on some occasions, and tried to write a clever, funny index, which was of no use. It was very annoying. I ended up doing the index myself. And then, to my chagrin, I was charged for the services of the faulty index maker. I am still, as the young people say, uh, salty about this. And because I owed the publisher roughly $1,500 for an index, I still haven't made up the advance on the book. So even if you buy a bunch of books this week, I will still not get any money from it. I'm still paying back the advance, uh, and that will last the rest of this lifetime and and the next. So uh, buy a copy of the book. See if you like it. Tell me what you think of it, and we'll find out if it makes a difference. We won't do it next week because there's no live show, but we'll come back on March 18th of 2020, which is where we are right now, with Michael Bonner, who has written a book called Confederate Political Economy, Creating and Managing a Southern Corporatist Nation. And then we'll talk the following week to Cody Mars, who writes another book called Not Even Past, The Stories We Keep Telling About the Civil War. That'll take us into April 2020, the month of our 500th episode. Uh, The schedule is still in flux, but the April schedule will include Heather Cox Richardson and her uh, much-talked-about new book, How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. So lots coming up on the show. Uh, Join us, listen to the show, go to the website www.impedimentsofwar.org where you can find out who's going to be on next. Mark Gaffney keeps the show up there. You can buy books through that website. Uh, Click through to Amazon and he gets a few pennies to help pay the website uh, bandwidth costs. So lots to do there. Well, here we're talking about uh, not the kind of petty crime committed by Uh, charlatans producing useless podcasts uh, that promote self-published books. We're talking about actual history books about the Civil War, and in particular a book about Andersonville, the the dreadful camp where Union POWs were held. The book's title is Andersonville Raiders, Yankee vs. Yankee in the Civil War's Most Notorious Prison Camp, and its author is Mary Gorman. She is our guest tonight. Mary, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for having me on, Jerry. Well, it's good to talk with you again. As I mentioned a minute ago, we met last year at uh, Gettysburg at, in the the uh, dining hall, I, I recall, and you yeah. told me about this really interesting story that I knew nothing about happening at Andersonville. And uh we said, uh, you got to be on the show. So here we are. Uh, when you're not we going are. to Civil War Institute uh, or writing this book, uh, what, what keeps you busy most of the day? Um, I'm a high school history teacher. Ah, that, that is an old so profession. That, <laughs> that yeah. is, 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 is uh, <laughs> my, my admiration for you. My wife teaches uh, high school and, and uh, late middle school. 
and in English, and she works a lot harder than I do. So my my head is off to you. Where do where do you teach? Amherst, Massachusetts. And so, what what uh, do your students know anything about Andersonville? No, it's kind of sad because the way the curriculum is set up, they cover U.S. history up to the Civil War in junior high school, and then they never talk about the Revolution or the Civil War again. Ah, that is tragic. We start, high school, we start U.S. high school history at the um, Reconstruction. Wow. You know, it's funny, in the South, we high school does cover Civil War, and then they pick up after Reconstruction. That Reconstruction is what they don't want to talk about in school here. Mm-hmm. Um but but you're skipping the Civil War. Uh, dreadful. So what got you interested in this story? Well, I started off as, as an English teacher, and when I got my certification for history, a friend said, I have all these letters from a Civil War sailor. He wasn't an ancestor, but her grandmother was his widow's nurse. When the widow died, there was no family left, so the nurse didn't want to just toss out these letters, so she kept them. And they stayed in the family for 100 years. And when I, my friend said, would you like to see them to see if you could use them in your classes? I said, sure. And they were the most unbelievable letters I had ever seen. Um, the sailor was named Frederick Augustus James. He was a sailor on the Housatonic, which, of course, was the first ship ever sucked by a submarine. Um, he wrote about chasing um, blockade runners. He ha- has a six-page description of a battle that he's watching from the deck of the Housatonic. And if you check the dates and where he is, he's watching the the Battle of um, Fort Wagner, where the wow. Massachusetts 54th, you know, tried to take mm-hmm. the fort back. And it's famous now because it's the the battle at the end of the movie Glory. Um, Fred didn't realize that they were African-American soldiers, and honestly, from where he stood, he thought they'd won. And he had to wow. write the next morning and say, I'm sorry to say I was mistaken. He ended up fighting in... A battle to take back Fort Sumter. It lasted about 20 minutes, the Second Battle of Fort Sumter. Became a prisoner of war, um, became a hostage, um, ended up at Andersonville and died five days before he would have been sent back north. I kind of got a little bit obsessed with him, and I found out that his diary was ex- was still in existence and had been published in 1973. The story went that a Catholic priest, Jefferson Hammer, had walked into an antique store picked up this little leather-bound book, and it turned out to be a diary, and that became his obsession. And I managed to hook up with Father Hammer just before he he died. He died a few months later. And we were comparing the diary and the letters, and the only blank that Fred James left in his diary was the names of the the six raiders. He said six men were hanged today by, by our own men, their names were, and he left a blank, and I had to fill in that blank, and that's how I went down the rabbit hole. It wow. turns out that there were seven names, but only six men hanged, and I had to sort that out. I think I did. So, so, so these six raiders, as they were called, they are, um, but listeners are going to want to get a copy of the book, but uh, until they okay. read it, what, let's get the basic uh, facts. So these six men are hanged. Uh, mm-hmm. What does it mean to say they are raiders? What 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 is a raider in that context? There were actually more than more than six raiders. It's hard to tell exactly how many they were, but the raiders were a group of prisoners that preyed on the other prisoners. They would rob, they would steal. Um, sometimes they just plain swindle. 
Um, the rumor in the camp was that they were also murderers, that if people fought back, they wouldn't, they would, you know, end up killing them. And it got so bad that the prisoners finally got together and with the assistance of the Confederate prison authorities, um, staged an arrest, had a court-martial, and ultimately hanged the, these six. There were probably about um, 15 altogether that were tried. But it's kind of unprecedented. There's no other case in the Civil War of prisoners hanging their own and administering prison justice like that. So there were the, the Confederate administration was complicit, or at least was aware of what was going on and allowed it to happen, but did not instigate yep. it. They didn't instigate it. What actually happened was the Raiders got so bad that finally there was one beating of a prisoner who was named Dowd, and they beat him so badly that he managed to make his way to the prison gate. He attracted the attention of Henry Wirtz, the prison commandant, and Wirtz took one look at him and said, I want the guys that did this. And so... It resulted in kind of a free-for-all, prisoners running around and trying to identify um, guys that they said were raiders. They took out probably about 100 guys, and Wirt said, no, I can't deal with 100 guys. We're going to keep the worst ones, and he sent the rest of them back into the prison. Unfortunately, the other prisoners knew these guys were coming, and they were ready for them. They armed themselves with clubs and sticks and whatever else they could get, and as these guys were... Um, forced to go back into the stockade, the prisoners started beating them, and they beat at least one guy to death um, without a trial. So, the, so, so they're running the gauntlet, literally, of their fellow prisoners. Literally these, running the, the suspects between two yeah, rows. Who, wow. Yeah, between two rows of prisoners that are armed with clubs, uh, whatever they could get hold of. So the remaining suspects, the ones, the worst ones, uh, were they subject to a trial? How did they decide if they were guilty? Yeah, they held a court martial and they tried to make it as fair as they could. The jury was made up of sergeants of the mess in the prison who had been there the least amount of time on the idea that they would be the least prejudiced and the most open-minded about it. And of the fifteen guys that were tried, six were condemned. Um, one was had his sent his trial pushed back, and I never did find out what happened. Four of them were found guilty, and a couple of them were actually acquitted. Wow! So uh, six are found guilty, however, and they are mm-hmm. sentenced to death. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk more with our guest tonight, Mary Gorman. She's the author of Andersonville Raiders. Yankee versus Yankee in the Civil War's most notorious prison camp. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. 
Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Mary Gorman, author of Andersonville Raiders, Yankee vs. Yankee in the Civil War's Most Notorious Prison Camp. We established in our first segment the, uh, the outline of the story that at Andersonville, at the prison camp, there were Union POWs who preyed upon their fellows, who stole and robbed and cheated and beat and even killed uh, fellow prisoners until the the majority rose up. The numbers you give in the book, there, there are at least 20,000 prisoners by the time the, uh, the trial and execution takes place. And, and you said, you know, a few dozen to a few hundred raiders. Uh, so it's really a small minority keeping the rest cowed until finally they can't, can't put up with it anymore. Is that fair to say? It really is, and the people that wrote about it afterwards, the prisoners who wrote memoirs and such, um, kind of exaggerated how big a threat the raiders actually were. Um, if you look at the, take the number of prisoners to the numbers of raiders, the raiders were outnumbered 52 to 1. So they really weren't going to take over the whole prison, but they were bad enough that something had to be done because they were getting worse and worse as time went on, especially after the prisoners who'd been captured at Plymouth, they were nicknamed the Plymouth Pilgrims, they had just gotten paid, they got their bounties, they got their back pay, and they were captured, and they negotiated as part of their terms of surrender that they would keep their money. So all this money came into Andersonville in May, and the crime rate just took off. But it's still a fairly small group that's committing the crimes. So you, Plymouth, North Carolina, uh, you mentioned May 1864 is where they were captured, which, uh, listeners, if you're in my neighborhood, there's the annual reenactment at uh, Plymouth every year. Uh, I'm looking at the folder here, 30th anniversary, Battle of Plymouth, Living History Weekend, April 25, 26, 2020. They have a, a scale model of the CSS Albemarle, which floats up and down the river, uh, it's not quite full size, but it's like three quarter size. I don't know why they didn't go the other quarter, uh, but it's it's fun to look at. It goes up and down and shoots its guns, and 
there's the, the usual reenactment uh, things that go on. But the story of Plymouth is a great story, and uh, uh, Leslie Gordon's wonderful book about the 16th Connecticut uh, describes yeah. the the fate of that regiment there, uh, getting captured, and and you say they were they were called the Plymouth Pilgrims when they arrived. They were nicknamed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they show up with their money, and uh, suddenly the prison has an economy. Suddenly there's something to circulate, and uh, and that yeah. brings crime. So the sure the, uh, the 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 trial takes place. Uh, six are condemned uh, to be executed. They're going to be hanged. Uh, do you do you write in the book in detail about each of the the six? So, and I want to ask you about them individually, uh, as much as we have time for. But let's talk about the hanging generally. Uh, given that the prisoners are not, uh, you know, they're they're prisoners. They don't have any stuff to speak of. They don't have the uh, me- mechanical supports of a of a courtroom and a a criminal justice system and a place to hang people. How do they carry this off? How does it go? Uh, um, the execution or the trial? Uh, the execution. I mean, once we get to... The execution was done with the cooperation of the prison authorities. Um, there were two general orders. One authorized the arrest and trial, and the other authorized the execution that were issued by John Winder, who was the... Um, overseer of the southern prison system, mm-hmm. and the Confederate prison authorities actually furnished the wood to build the gallows and the rope to hang them with. But so the hanging they know what's going on. Be- right. They totally know what was going on. Um, there was one really famous prisoner who wrote a memoir, uh, John McElroy, and in the memoir he says that the Confederate prison authorities, you know, wouldn't cooperate at all, and didn't really care, but in fact, they did care. They did take a part part in the whole proceedings, and I don't think it could have come off without them helping. So, so they they see what's going on. They're allowing it to happen. You started to say the hanging is is, is botched to an extent. Tell us about that. Um, most of the prisoners think that these there there was like a. 10-day span between the time they were convicted and the time the execution took place. They were held outside the prison, and finally on July 11th, about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, they march in with the priests, Henry Wirtz, and the the, prison, the, the condemned men. Um, and a lot of the prisoners commented that until that moment, the prisoners, the raiders seemed to think it was a joke, and didn't really believe they were going to be executed until they were right there at the foot of the gallows looking up at the nooses. Um, one of the prisoners, Curtis, um, took off. He ran. Um, but when you're surrounded by 26,000 people and they're all there to watch you hang, you really got no place to go, and they dragged him back and hung him. The, all six were hanged at one time. They stood on one prop. They knocked the prop out. The platform fell. And the rope of one of the guys broke. Um, it was a big guy. His name was Collins. He was six foot tall, probably about 200 pounds. And he woke up and said, am I dead? And they said, no, but you will be soon. And they they brought him back up and they hanged him a second time. And that time it was fatal. And that was the end of the Raiders. Well, the, the notion that, that the Raiders didn't really see this coming is interesting because that that's a long-running piece of 
of, of performance art of governmental theater to carry out uh, an execution right up to the last moment, and then the governor's pardon arrives, and the, the criminal weeps with gratitude and reform, and everybody watching goes away chastened. Wow, I better be a better citizen. Uh, and, and you see it in English law, and then you see that in the, the Civil War, Lincoln frequently pardons uh, soldiers who are due to be executed, and sometimes a pardon arrives at the last moment. So it's understandable how the the uh, the, the, the soldiers here, the, the criminals here, would think that that's what's going on here. And it is kind of unbelievable that the the powers that be would, would let the prisoners not just carry out a trial, but actually execute these guys. So yeah. there must have been a mo- moment when they when when the light went on in their heads. Oh, this is real. Yeah, and you know they they asked the the priest that accompanied them, uh, Father Peter Whelan, to make an appeal on their behalf. But the prisoners at that point had had enough, and they were going to make an example of these guys. And so there was. Yeah, I mean there there was no fooling around at this point. There there was no mercy to be had. Um, nope. Now you mentioned uh, uh, Curtis. Uh, one, one, the name of one of these uh, soldiers are to be executed, who tries to break away but is quickly recaptured. You have an interesting story about. Was he really Curtis? I do. Um, well, that's a good question. Um, according to the. I, when I went to research this, I decided I was going to look mostly at diaries and military service records and memoirs written within five years, because I figured the farther away I got from the events, the less likely it was to be accurate. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charles Curtis of the 5th Rhode Island Heavy Artillery was the fellow who tried to bolt at the last minute. If you read his military service record, he's executed on July 11th, 1864, but he doesn't desert until January 1st, 1865. So there was something really funny there. And digging a little further, we came up with the hospital records. Charles Curtis, the real Charles Curtis of the fifth Rhode Island developed malaria in April of 1864. He was in the hospital until August. Um, His entire company was captured, but he wasn't there at the time. Somebody somewhere along the line started assuming Charles Curtis's identity, um, which wasn't a strange thing to to have happen in Andersonville because a lot of times if a prisoner died and you pretended you were them, you could collect fair rations too and maybe survive a little bit better. But somebody for some reason told people that they were Charles Curtis of the Fifth Rhode Island. Um, It gets kind of funny because there is a newspaper article that was written, published in 1865 that's supposedly a transcript, and I believe it is an accurate one, of the trial, and it refers to Charles Curtis as W. Rickson, W-R-I-X-O-N, of the USS Steamship Powhatan. Um, There was no Rickson with a W and an X, but there was a a sailor on the Powhatan named William Ritson, R-I-T-S-O-N, and he was captured, surprisingly enough, along with Frederick James at the Second Battle of Fort Sumter. Um, everybody from that battle ultimately ends, with one exception to the guy who died, ends up at Andersonville, except that William Ritson seems to disappear. Um, the last thing in his file is final disposition not reported. 
I think what happened is that um, Ritson, for whatever reason, assumed the alias of Charles Curtis. And when he was executed, they would carry the bodies out to the dead house to be identified, and they'd write the names in the regiment in the, the death register. If you look at the death register, there's nobody from the... A big part of the page is missing, but you can still see all the regiments. There's nobody from the 5th Rhode Island listed on the death register. Um, but there is what looks to be the name... Looks, looks to be the name of a person from the 76th New York. And the prisoners in their diaries said there was a, a raider named John Sullivan from the 76th New York. So you have the death register where Curtis isn't there. Um, Sullivan is, and there are supposedly two sailors who were hanged, um, Andrew Muir and W. Rickson, R-I-C-K-S-O-N. That's the name on the grave marker. Um, and it looks like in the death register, there are two sailors. Um, so my best guess is that the sailors from the Powhatan that were captured along with um, William Ritson at the Second Battle of Fort Sumter were aware of his identity, but sailors were a really small minority. There were about 200 of them at Andersonville. And most of the people knew him as Curtis. That was who he told people he was. Um, every diary that you read, it talks about Curtis. But then when you get to the death register, Curtis isn't there, and Rick, Rickson is. I know that eight of the prisoners that were captured along with him, the sailors, worked in the hospital and would have had contact and been able to identify William Ritson by his actual name. But it was misheard instead of R-I-T-S-O-N. They wrote W-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. And so, I believe for the last 150 years, um, people have been identifying him as Curtis, but that wasn't actually who he was. The real Charles Curtis um, had malaria, was in the hospital, never where actually was at Andersonville. So we've got a case of mistaken identity uh, that has lasted on the, the headstones there uh, ever since. We're going to take another short break. We'll come right back, talk more about Andersonville Raiders, Yankee versus Yankee in the Civil War's most notorious prison camp. We're talking with the book's author, Mary Gorman. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u dot e-d-u. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with... Mary Gorman, author of Andersonville Raiders, Yankee versus Yankee in the Civil War's Most Notorious Prison Camp. Uh, I, I learned so many really remarkable things from this book. The idea, Mary, that you mentioned about identities, we talked about uh, Charles Curtis not being the real identity of one of the people remembered as one of the Raiders. He was a different soldier elsewhere. Uh, but you, you describe how when a group of, uh, say, 20 sailors were about to be exchanged and leave the camp, but 15 had already died, the soldiers would, the surviving five sailors would adopt 15 soldiers to adopt the identities of the dead men, and thus they could yep. be exchanged. Uh, That's one of my favorite stories in this. It, it is. It's um, that how resourceful they were to get out of there. Yep. Um there's actually an account. Remember, I started this journey by Frederick Augustus James, who died five days before he would have been sent back north. There's right. an account by a, a soldier named William Hale, who was working in the gang green ward at the hospital. And on the night of September 20th, um, he was approached by one of the sailors, and it was James's best friend, w- Richard Tinker. And he said, listen, uh, we just got word that all the sailors are going to. All the sailors who are fit to travel are going to be leaving the prison shortly. Um, we, it, they asked me to write a list of all the sailors who are here. I included the name of my friend Fred James, who just died. And when we leave here, you're going to be Frederick James, and you're going to come out with us. And so the sailors actually managed to rescue. It's not clear how many soldiers, but when you get a list, when you look at the list of sailors who were exchanged. A lot of the names on that list are names that are of people that are still in the cemetery. They never left Andersonville, but people using their names were able to escape the prison that way. It's just a, a really touching story of, of both cleverness and devotion and risk that they're taking on each yep. other's behalf. Um, speaking of, of aliases and using adopted identities, I <laughs> want to be sure that everybody listening to this tonight is able to buy your book. And if they go looking for the author, uh, Mary Gorman, uh, they may be confused because on the printed on the cover of the book, it says Andersonville Raiders uh, by Gary Morgan. Uh, yeah, switch my initials. You switched uh, the initials around uh, from, from Gary Morgan to Mary Gorman, your real name. Uh, and you mentioned in the acknowledgments the Gary experiment. Can you tell us about that? 
Um, I was at a Salisbury Confederate Prison Association symposium, and my roommate was from the University of Dallas. She's a librarian, uh, Shelley Gaylor Smith, and she she knew I was writing. She said, "How many female Civil War historians can you name?" And I said, "A few." And she said, "Well, how many men can you name?" I said, "Quite a few more." And she said, "What does that tell you?" So I tried an experiment. I took sixteen book proposals. That they were identical in every way except that eight were signed Mary Gorman and eight of them I signed Gary Morgan. The only difference was the perceived gender of the person sending it. Gary got six replies. Mary got three. All of Gary's were personalized letters. All of Mary's were form rejections. At that point, I went, I can't beat the system, so I might as well play the system. And so I submitted it under the name Gary Morgan. And I didn't tell the publisher I was a woman until I, until I had actually finished negotiating money. Um, and how, how did that go over at that students, point? There was a three-day pause where there was no reply, and I got an email back that said, we can't say that we're really surprised at your experience, but we are disappointed. Um, they pointed out that one of their best-selling military historians at Stackpole Books was a woman, mm-hmm. and they said, are you sure you wouldn't want to just put the initial M and then your last name? And I thought about it. Um, and I finally decided to stay with Gary because if I changed at that point and put a woman's name on, the story about the bias towards a man and against a woman would have been lost, and so I decided I was just going to keep it on there. My high school students are really funny. They say I need a theme song, and it should be The Dude Looks Like a Lady. (laughs) Well, it's... uh... Yeah, it, it's amusing in a sense, and it has a happy ending that your book was published, and it's it's a fascinating book that tells a story that Thank has you. not been told in this detail up to now. Uh, I will say here on Civil War Talk Radio, listeners know that there are some seasons where we'll have uh, you know sixteen shows, and we'll have eight men and eight women uh, among the authors, but we'll also have seasons where there will be fourteen men and two women. I, I don't consciously take that into account when selecting guests, but it is much easier to come up with a preponderance of male Civil War historians than female ones. I don't think we've ever had a season with more women than men uh, as guests, and that does reflect just the the way the system has been uh, in existence for many years, and, and you know, it's changing, but it's changing very slowly. Yeah. Uh, Some so, of it may have to do with genre, too. I think mm-hmm. if a man wanted to pub, I think some of it has to do with genre as well. Sure. I think yes. if a male wanted to publish a romance novel, he might hit a brick wall. I think it's probably easier as a woman to go into Civil War history than it would be for a man to go into romance. But at the same time, I don't really have any answers or solutions. I can just say this was my experience and this was what happened. Well, I think that's a really good point. The genre has a lot to do with it. And I also think it it's, it is it is hard to eradicate because it's not conscious. I, I doubt any of the people at any of the publishing houses that rejected Mary's book or accepted Gary's book uh, consciously said, oh, we don't want a female historian. No, I don't uh, believe they did either. Nor did they say, oh, one of the guys, yeah, we'll sign his book. Uh, I don't think it works that way. I think it's much more subtle because it's so unconscious. We just don't realize we're making these decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there they go. Well, speaking of I aliases. Talking, let, sorry. I, I, no, go ahead. 
I was going to say, I was talking to the social, we were actually discussing this in the social department at lunch today at my school, and it's not just a history thing, it's an across-the-board thing. Mm-hmm. They were talking about one of the women was a co-coach to our soccer team, but when the referees came, they would always approach the man to talk to and not the woman just because that was what they expected. So sometimes it's an unconscious bias. It, it it is. I've I've been in stores where the salespeople come up to me and not my wife. I'm not interested in which sofa yep. we buy. She is, uh, but they walk up yep. to me and and we both look at each other like, what? Excuse me, 21st century. What are you doing? Uh, ask us who's interested. But nonetheless, that's what goes on. Uh, but let's move back to the 19th century. Uh, okay. Speaking of other aliases, uh, William Collins, who many accounts describe as as the the leader, uh, he, his alias was, was Mosby, and that was not a mistake. Mm-hmm. That was. Uh, tell us about William Collins. Um, Collins is an interesting guy. There's actually he was um, he enlisted almost as soon as the war began for a three year period. He had almost finished. He he'd served like two and a half years when he supposedly deserted, but I'm not sure he actually did. Mm-hmm. Um, the night he disappeared, they were on night maneuvers and um, moving on the double quick. And I, it was a new moon. It was dark. And it doesn't make sense to me that this guy would have fought for two years. He fought at Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, Fredericksburg. He was actually wounded in the thigh at Second Manassas. Um, he was taken to prisoner of war and exchanged. Um, he only had five months left to go, and it doesn't make sense to me that he would have deserted. But that's not to say that he was a particularly good soldier, because when he was injured, there's a letter that exists that says, um, this guy's been here a really long time, and today when it was time for the prisoner, the patients to go back to their regiments, he was nowhere to be found. He's usually in the guardhouse. He's frequently drunk. And... I think his finest moment probably came at Gettysburg. His name is actually on the Pennsylvania Monument towards the back um, mm-hmm. with the 88th Pennsylvania. But he um, was a big guy. He was He's the one who, that the rope broke for. He was six mm-hmm. foot tall. Um, I think maybe in the heat of battle, he was just big and loud and they could see him, and that was why they promoted him to corporal. But he's the only one of the Raiders who was not Irish and who was not... Um, not Irish, not Catholic, and not a private. But he, I think he was kind of like a prison crime lord. He was the one that organized them, and he was the one that, if they came running back being chased, he and his buddies would get between the people chasing and the raider who committed the crime and would kind of protect him. Um, so he... he- he ran things. He, he's the organizer he of this. And he took and his nickname Mosby from Mosby's Raiders, who were, of course, Confederates who would break into small groups, have a quick concentrated attack, and then get out before the um, Union troops could rally themselves. Uh, Mosby's and the Raiders' style of attack was frequently very similar. They'd have a small group, they'd single out a victim, they'd go in, they'd commit the crime, and then they'd run back to the southeast corner of the prison, which was where the Raiders stayed. So they 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 picked out their victims, they, they descended on mm-hmm. them, they, they took the whatever they had, money or a pair of boots or anything that was useful, and, and off they yeah. went. Um, 
Now, one of the other Raiders, uh, John Sarsfield, uh, where where some of these guys, there really is no no uh, uh, you know there, there, there's no actual Charles Curtis in the camp. Uh, with Sarsfield, there's two of them. Uh, who who yeah. is Sarsfield? Well, that's a good question. Um, the, Sarsfield, the name on the grave marker says John Sarsfield, but if you go uh, 140th New York Regiment, but if you go back and look at this guy's military service record, his first name is James. If you go even farther back and look at the day that they that he joined the army, um, there's somebody that comes in, joins the army, is assigned to a regiment named John Sarsfield and is never seen again. And then later that same day, somebody comes into the very same recruiting post, um, joins the army. His name is James Sarsfield, and he ends up with the 140th. Uh, fights with them for eight months, by all appearances, was a halfway decent soldier. He's never absent. He's never um, AWOL. And he ends up at Andersonville. Of all the six guys who were executed, I think he was probably the most vicious. Um, the attack that finally served as a catalyst was an attack on a prisoner named Dowd. And Sarsfield um, was pretty much the leader of that attack. And he's, there's a quote where he's got a knife and he says, stop struggling or I'm going to cut out your heart and shove it down your throat. Um, that's, that's pretty cold. Yeah. So he's, he's also the one that I can find the least about. Um, there's, uh, an immigrant a couple months before Sarsfield goes into the army named, named James Sarsfield. It might be the same guy. It might not, but he ended up being drafted, which is why I don't, the Raiders are frequently described as deserters and bounty hunters, but most of them weren't bounty hunters. The only one that actually was was Sullivan for the simple fact that they were drafted. And if you're drafted, there's no bounty. Um, Delaney definitely was a deserter. Sullivan was definitely a deserter. Collins, maybe, maybe not. But Sarsfield was captured in the Battle of of the Wilderness. Um, He wasn't a deserter. Um, He seems to have been a really nasty person. But he wasn't a deserter. So I, I, bounty jumpers. What I, you said, bounty hunter. But you, you, you're referring to the guys who leave, who collect the bounty, bounty and run away. And right. The and right now you, there's you one more. You, I'm sorry. A bounty jumper is somebody that would join the army, collect the bounty that was the enlistment bounty that was offered, and then change their name and leave town and do the same thing again in the next town and the next town. It was a pretty lucrative business, from what I gather. It, it sounds like it could work. Um, just so we get all six of them mentioned, uh, uh, Munn or Muir is, is the last Muir. of the six. Uh, let's talk talk yeah, he, about him. He's actually kind of a sad one in the group. He was a sailor on the Water Witch. His tour of enlistment was actually totally up. He'd been there for a year. He was raiding for transportation home, and the Water Witch was captured by Confederate Confederate raiding party. Um, he ended up Arriving at Andersonville June 5th, the Raiders were arrested June 29th, and he was hanged on July 11th. So he went from zero to 60 really fast. And wow. for a long time, the question was, what could he have done in that short a period of time to get him hanged? And what he did was he ended up being part of the group 
that attacked a prisoner named Dowd. Um, that was the really vicious beating that made Wirtz say, I want the guys that did this. And Dowd's also been misidentified for the last 150 years. Um, they, there was a prisoner a few years after that who said, I'm the guy who's, who's beating Brat down the Raiders, a man named John Urban. He wrote a memoir. And I think he actually believed that he was, but he never actually says in his memoir that that he was Dowd. He says that they didn't get any money because I didn't have any, and that doesn't fit the story because the story is that they got quite a bit of money from the, the fellow that they robbed. And he, said, he never says that he talked to Wirtz, and that's another piece of the story. And it turns out that there really was a, a, a soldier named Dowd, and this is kind of the thing I'm proudest of is that I was able to identify this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, in the newspaper transcript, it says that he was a member of the 93rd New York Regiment. Dowd in the prisoner's diaries and memoirs is always written D-O-W-D. Uh, Dowd, who was with the 93rd Regiment, was D-O-U-D. Uh, his name was John Dowd. He was a farmer from Avoca, New York. He was 43 years old, so supportive of his mother, um, minding his own business, and he got drafted. His mom went to the draft board and said, you know, please, he's my only support. Don't take him. They said, he's going. Um, he was one of the Plymouth Pilgrims. He had just gotten paid. Um, and he was in Andersonville, and Sarsfield approached him and said, do you want to buy a watch? And he said, let's see the watch. And that was one of the things the Raiders would do to identify who had the money, because if you didn't have enough money to buy a watch, you wouldn't ask to see it. So mm. Sarsfield left. He came back with reinforcements. And, you know, God bless John Dowd. He really, really fought to keep that money that he had wanted to send back to his mother. Um, they ended up pulling knives. They had um, clubs. They had brass knuckles. And by all accounts, they really beat the tar out of this poor guy. Um, they beat him so badly that he ends up being one of the last prisoners released from Andersonville. They keep him until April of 1865. When he gets home, he's not rec- he, they can't recognize him anymore. Um, he's too frail. He has headaches the rest of his life. He's too frail to go back to farming. He tries setting up a cooper shop for a while. Um, eventually his health just gets so bad that three years after he gets home, he dies. And that's the story of John Dowd that nobody is aware of. Well, I'm glad we got to hear the story of John Dowd. He deserves to be heard after what he did to help help end this at Andersonville. Unfortunately, we are out of time tonight. We're going to have to end it here. But listeners, uh, look for the name Gary Morgan on the book. It's called Andersonville Raiders, Yankee versus Yankee in the Civil War's Most Notorious Prison Camp. But you'll know it's written by our guest tonight, Mary Gorman. Mary, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, and have a fantastic break. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.